welcome to episode 245 of Cinematary. I'm your host, Zach Dennis, and I'm here with... Andrew Swafford. And Reed Ramsey. In today's episode, we will be talking about movies that we saw this week in part one. And in part two, we will be continuing our Truth and Fiction in the South series with 1997's Four Little Girls and 2014's Selma. Uh, But let's go ahead and get into movies that we saw this week. And let's start... Let's go high and then low. (laughs) <laughs> and literally the high is, has that in the title. Um, mm. Andrew Reed, and I can talk a little bit about it, but it's been a while since I've seen it. Uh, let's talk about High Life, the new Claire Denis film. Okay, Reed, do you want to take this synopsis? Yeah. <laughs> Good luck. Sure. Why not? Okay. Reed's like, uh... uh <laughs> that was a nice de- nice defer, but okay. I just saw it, so that that's okay. Um. High Life is the Claire Denis new movie starring Robert Pattinson and Juliette Binoche. And it basically, uh, to sum it up all too simplistically, follows a crew of inmates who are on death row, who have been sent on uh, uh, a mission through space to go and explore a black hole for renewable energy. They've kind of elected to do this mission instead of serve their life terms or uh continue their sentence on death row but it's uh i don't know it's the story interweaves throughout like different segments of it and it's mostly about robert pattinson's relationships with different characters and the way this crew gets along on this ship and all the the good and the bad that comes from that anything i left out yeah no that's a good summary okay there's a fuck machine there is I definitely left that out. It's okay. I just want to make it clear. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> what did you think of High Life, Reed? Um, so I told a friend leaving that it was one of the most unpleasant experiences I've had in the movie in a long time, and that I also really liked it, which is not actually the way I normally relax, react to very unpleasant movie experiences. But it uh, it is almost never enjoyable that's very graphic and graphic violent uh with violence and sexuality um but i i found it to be like in the end oddly affirming and more than anything to be about redemption and life coming from despair and from the sterility of the ship there's still life that can come from that and i think that is overall like even that's too simplistic, but I think that is what kind of sold me on it is maybe even the last couple shots that showed me that this was more than just a, an exercise and me not enjoying a movie, but it had a lot more to say to, than that. And I found it, I, I'm still thinking about it now. I thought it was great. What did you think? I think that maybe in the last minute or so of this high life talk, we could maybe uh, get spoilery about those last couple of shots and and talk about what we think they mean. Uh, Because I'm still mulling them over and I'm not sure I have a firm conclusion on what's being implied there. But I I also liked the movie a lot um, and can agree with you that it has a lot of unpleasant stretches to it. Um, one thing that's really dominated my thinking since watching it, uh, 
a lot a lot of which has to do with the way that I've seen other people react to it online is the the way that sexuality and specifically sexual assault is treated in the movie. I remember a lot of the reviews out of TIFF were very meme about the like the amount of cum and like the sex machine and stuff in the movie, but really all of the sex in the film is very very unpleasant. Um, and I've I've really had to go back and and rethink um what exactly Claire Denis is doing there. And I'm still kind of working through it, so maybe we can get into that stuff. But in general, um, I found it to be a much easier watch than a lot of Claire Denis movies are. Not not because of the, the violence of the content, but just in terms of the um, clarity of the storytelling. Uh, often, I think Claire Denis is like intentionally... Uh, obscuring or fragmenting her narratives, leaving a lot of things unsaid and and allowing you the the viewer to to piece them together or fill in the gaps. And here we mostly get a complete narrative. Um, it has a, a a back and forth flashback structure um, where in the beginning you could maybe be forgiven for thinking that, two different timelines are happening concurrently, but very quickly you can you can differentiate like when is the past and when is the present. And once you've got that straight in your head, I actually think it's a fairly easy movie to follow, um, which was pretty new for me with a Claire Denis film. Uh, and this is like the eighth one of hers I have seen. Um, so uh, maybe that's just I'm becoming more fluent in how she makes movies, or maybe this is just more of a straightforward picture. But I thought that it it really worked as like a sci-fi genre piece. And it also has a lot of uh, like great atmospherics and, and aesthetics to it. Um, but other thoughts about any of those things that I just threw out? Yeah, I think, so this is the the third Claire Denis film I've seen. Um, so I've seen a lot fewer, but just based solely on this one, I think it seems... Based on the other two I've seen, this seems to be kind of an outlier. And based on what I know about her, a lot of her other work, it seems to be an outlier, both in terms of maybe, I mean, this is this is just assuming a lot, but in terms of scope, just the fact that this takes place in space in this kind of futuristic uh, idea, and it's largely focused on science and space, and there's black holes and CGI and stuff like that. Um, so in that way, it seems very different than what she's usually doing, but it also felt a lot colder than the couple of movies I'd seen from her before. Not, not that it's completely cold. I still think the, uh, several of the performers bring a lot of emotion and a lot of like strength and she lights them often in ways that pull out of a lot of, pull out a lot of emotion from, uh, their performance as well. But I, it overall is cold just in terms of, the acts we're seeing on screen and the way they're often portrayed. So when we're talking about the sexual violence, which like uh, I'd heard all the jokes coming out of TIFF too, that it was this like horny movie. And that's really not what it is at all. It's more about like a a desensitized uh, look at sexuality and honestly just like a really graphic one at rape and sexual assault. And it's so detached from some of those acts that it's incredibly unsettling like it's unsettling how okay you can be watching it based on that detachment i agree i I went back and re-listened to nathan's review on the podcast of 35 shots of rum and i thought that he put her style really well when he was talking about how the camera is often very close to the characters but you can't necessarily 
you don't always have an idea of what they're thinking. So there's this there's this sense of physical intimacy to them, but also sort of mental or emotional detachment. Yet there is that sense of warmth and humanity to all of her films, or most of her films at least. Um, and I, I agree with you. It's it's lost here. Not not in a way that the movie is missing something, but I think that was the right tone to make it very clinical and very detached because that is exactly what the antagonist of this film is kind of using against her subjects here. Um, I, I went and read a review with an interview with Denis, and she was talking about one of the impetuses of, of making this was uh, reading a lot about the death penalty and um, her, her kind of framing the death penalty for herself mentally as like this, the, this very socially acceptable form of murder that we, we don't really think too hard about because it is so clinical and it is done in this like state ordained way, but that doesn't necessarily make it any less of a form of brutality. And I think that you can read what Juliette Binoche's character does throughout here uh, through that lens. Yeah, I can, I can definitely see that. Um, what did strike me here specifically is, um, and what leads into kind of a redemption angle of looking at this story and, uh, is that these prisoners were given this opportunity, uh, and sure, some of them took it to prolong their lives. Some of them took it for whatever reasons we often don't know because we don't get to spend a lot of time with all of them, but, it seems to me there is this sense of like, oh, we're doing something better than we'd be doing, just waiting on death row. Like we're probably going to mm-hmm. die, and we all know that, but we're doing something bigger where we have a chance to redeem ourselves. One of the characters kind of voices that and says a conversation he had with his wife before leaving was he can make all of their struggles and all their pain and everything he put his family through, he can make it all worth it through this redemption, and. He also says his wife kind of called him out on that being bullshit, essentially. But there is a sense of redemption just in their acts. But it's still this like it's still dehumanizing these people throughout the movie as well. To to cite yet another outside source, I read a good review of the movie by Nick Pinkerton, film comment writer, um, and he talked about it in terms of it being a prison movie. You know, it's. It's a sci-fi film. He also talks about it as sort of a biblical epic, but it's also very much a prison movie, which got me thinking about like the the women in prison films what you talked about with Pam Greer uh, a couple of months ago. Um, and it really does grapple with the idea of like looking at looking at the end of your life, uh, kind of looking out and, and only seeing a void and uh, trying to figure out how to kind of keep yourself going. And I don't think that just applies to... Um, I don't think it just applies to being in prison. I think that also applies to, you know, for example, in this film, raising a child um, in a world that doesn't seem like it has a lot of hope. Like, I think you could read High Life as sort of the sequel to First Reformed or something like what if what happens if Amanda Seyfried has this baby and but she still has these like deeply held convictions from her husband that nothing is ever going to get better. Like, how does she continue to like raise this child and, and inspire it and find joy and meaning in life staring down the void. And I think that's what most of, you know, the the scenes with just Rob Pattinson and the baby are really trying to evoke, which I guess brings us to the very end. Um, do you guys want to talk about what's going on in these last couple of shots? 
Yeah, sure. Um, we'll give a spoiler warning, I guess. Yeah, spoiler warning. If you haven't seen High Life, it's not really that spoilable of a movie, to be honest. Um, so, I mean, don't worry about it too much unless you're just like a very spoiler phobic person in general. Yeah, um, this is the spoiler phobic episode, so we might as well. <laughs> it is. We'll, we'll get into that stuff. The spoiler phobes have plenty in store for them soon. <laughs> uh, but in Nick Pinkerton's article, he kind of implies that the last shot is like a suggestion of incest uh, that that Rob Pattinson and his daughter are going to have to like repopulate the earth in this sort of like Adam and Eve, like Noah type way. And that was not something that I was thinking about while I was watching it, but I also didn't quite know how to process it while I was watching it. So, so talk me down from the ledge here. What, what do you guys think is going on? That is like, okay, that's not at all what I saw, but I actually, I, I did wonder if, Denis would take us there considering what we'd seen throughout the movie uh in the last third I kind of wondered if that would happen but the last shots basically to walk through it are uh Rob Pattinson and his daughter are going through a black hole and then we get to the other side essentially and they're no longer in the spaceship they're no longer in suits uh or at least their helmets are off and there's this nice orange lighting on both of them and it's just like a a shot a shot reverse shot essentially right yeah and he says something then, okay. like does he say like are you ready or something like that what's the line yeah uh that that sounds right i don't remember the exact words but uh i that it struck me as just being blatantly about the afterlife on it honestly like i thought that was the most clear image of the entire movie which is maybe on me for reading it that way. But it throughout the movie, we get uh, these terrible things happening that also have life on the other end. So there's two instances of sexual assault that combined, unfortunately, create the child, like the miracle child Julia Benoche has been trying to create. And she's evil, but she creates this child, essentially. Uh, so there's life there. They go into the black hole but there's life on the other side. And that struck me as being this kind of depiction of the afterlife or at least depiction of an afterlife or whatever. But that, that, that oh, was yeah, my, that makes sense. I don't know what y'all, how y'all took yeah. that. No, I buy that. Zach thoughts from you about the ending or about anything in general. I know it's been a long time since you've seen this. Um, what, what did you all feel kind of about just on, on a broader note uh, about Robert Pattinson, uh, you know, we talked about Kristen Stewart uh, a while back on our on our actors series and kind of talked about her transcending uh, the Twilight kind of role and, and, you know, doing all of these kind of interesting projects. She also found herself a, you know, a French auteur and Olivier Assayas to to latch on to much like Robert Pattinson did with Claire Denis. Um, but I mean, Pattinson's kind of been the same way. Like he's found a bunch of really interesting roles outside of the, you know, since he's kind of broken out of the blockbuster mold and has done, you know, I mean, we talked endlessly about good time. And and then I think that he really does some great work in this. I mean, just as kind of the, uh, the yin to her yang, I mean, is there, uh, what did, what did you, what did you make of kind of his performance and kind of what that means for the direction he's headed after his, uh, big break? I don't know how, um, many specifics I could pull out of it, but I thought his performance was really strong. Um, 
And Lydia told me she didn't really buy his role as a dad or like his uh, rapport with the baby. But I, I really responded positively to uh, those scenes in the, I guess, present or future section of the movie where it is just him um, like w- walking around with this with this very, very small baby and talking to it and singing to it. Um, apparently that is a baby of one of Rob Pattinson's real life friends that they just like swapped in for the actor baby who wasn't working out. Um, and I just thought that he really lit up the screen in, in those sequences. Uh, read anything else? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I agree. I think he does transcend the, obviously the twilight persona because he was fantastic and good time a couple years ago. And he's had some other really, uh, like high quality roles since then. But I, I did, I thought, I thought he carried the movie well and he's not, he's not asked to do as much as I thought he would be. It's a little more of an ensemble film than I expected, but, but I did, uh, I thought he was terrific. I think, I think he does a fantastic job. Yeah. He's, he's sort of a deadpan to respond to a lot of the, the really amped up, performances from Juliette Binoche and then one of the other guys whose name I can't remember not Andre Benjamin the the other guy um, also Kristen Stewart and Robert Pattinson are both good in Twilight they both bring to that role exactly what it, I, it I needs. 100% believe that <laughs> even though Twilight is not a well, great yeah. movie but we're not yeah but we're not I, I wouldn't say it was more that like it was this like massively popular you know, th- I mean, it's like it's kind of like what the Harry Potter kids are doing now. Like, you know, it's not like you're seeing Emma Watson like in the the latest <laughs> Hong Sang Soo movie or something. You know, it's like like they're like going yeah. this auteur route, this yeah. like this you know this this random route. Uh, and so I think it's kind of interesting that both of them have like cashed in their you know success with this giant franchise and are like, all right, we're gonna do like cool projects with people we're interested in and in stories we're interested in. Cool. Well, High Life uh, is in theaters now, so I guess I would, you know, people should check it out if they uh, get a chance, if it's in, it's playing near you. We also have a review coming out next Monday by O'Malley, Michael O'Malley, um, that'll be really good. So you should look on cemetery.com. Definitely. Um, another movie that hopefully is playing around you, uh, near you or, or in your local theater is Avengers Endgame. The culmination of 12 years in 22 movies uh, that Marvel has been leading up to. It's a lot of movies that Marvel has been leading up to. Uh, I think. I t- Have you heard the, uh, the 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 common line that's being thrown around, like that 22 is the 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 average ep- uh, average number of episodes in a season of network TV? That makes sense that makes sense because that plays into what they're kind of doing so you know when yep, you hire yep. tv directors that's what you know it's perfect um so pretty much for those i'm just gonna spoil stuff so if you're sensitive to that and you're bullying people on the internet fuck you and secondly just move past this portion because i'm just gonna spoil it can, can we can we talk about like what exactly constitutes a spoiler because i feel like the 
the the popular notions of what is considered a spoiler on this movie are ridiculous and deserve to be dunked on constantly. I'm just I'm gonna say everything. So okay, just, uh, sure. <laughs> yeah, if it's if that's that's your thing. So pretty much to wrap it up uh, quickly, at the end of Infinity War, the the Avengers movie prior to this, uh, all of the superheroes fought Thanos, the big purple guy, and but they didn't succeed. He snapped his fingers. When he snapped his fingers, fifty percent of the people on Earth, heroes included, uh, dis- just disappeared. They they went into dust. Um, so this one picks up like 20 or so days after that's happened. Uh, the superheroes are like, what are we going to do? Uh, you have the, the some part of the heroes are on Earth. They're despondent because they fought the purple guy and were like, uh, you know, this is the, I, I can't believe we lost. Uh, at, at the same time, Tony Stark, Iron Man is in space because he was part of the space people fighting and he is running out of oxygen. He is on this plane. Um, you, you get really excited because you think he's just going to, you know, peel off at that really early in the movie. But uh, lucky for him, Brie Larson shows up and in like true superhero fashion, like takes the 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 plane the ship thing and like flies it back to earth with her with her whatever power she has i didn't watch that one so i don't know (laughs) i don't know the extent of like what she's what she's good at um pretty much they get they, they all get together iron man's pissed off because he's a spoiled brat and um they go find thanos he reveals oh i blew up all the all my jewels on my on my glove and so thor cuts his head off which is kind of satisfying so then it picks up five years later, which there were audible gasps when that happened. And I was like, you know, whatever. Uh, five years later, uh, we have like everybody like working through the uh, the people vanishing. And uh, long story short, Paul Rudd shows up, bright, you know, burst of energy. And he's like, yo, guys, we can get those stones back. We're going to do some time travel stuff. And we'll get the stones before anybody steals them. Becomes kind of Back to the Future 2. If anybody has seen Back to the Future 2, where they literally go and repeat the events of the first Back to the Future. In this case, they literally go back and repeat kind of highlight moments of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We have one team going back in time and having to find the stone within the events of the first Avengers movie. Then you have uh, one within the events of the second Thor movie. And then you have one where it's, it's the events of Guardians of the Galaxy. So you're going, getting the stones. During this time, Thanos, the purple guy, figures out, hey, they're trying to get these stones. That's not good. I want the stones. So he gets, he, he's like, I'm going to find them. But, you know, yada, yada, yada. He catches up with them. Big battle happens. They think it's going to be over. It's not over. Uh... Benedict Cumberbatch uses his magic powers to bring all the superheroes back. It's a big old fight, and uh, they beat they beat him, and and they're all happy. Uh, along the way, Black Widow, see ya. Iron Man, see ya. I feel like I'm missing somebody, see ya. Uh, and then it all ends with Chris Evans as Captain America realizing, you know, what's better than being a superhero getting laid so he goes back in times returns the stones and goes and finds his girlfriend because he's like i've been alive for like 150 years fighting these people and fighting these aliens and all this stuff and i've never had sex and that sounds way more fun than doing anything more superhero wise wait is that literally true he's never had sex yeah he's never had sex 
I don't know if that was the the leading factor in why he went back in time. I think it was love or some shit, but I think it was because he wanted to get laid. So that's the end of the movie. Um, all in all, it's an exhausting movie. It much has been said about the length. It's about two hours and forty five minutes. Um, it is just just exhausting like it's just so wait it's not two hours and 45 minutes it's three hours well with like all the credits and crap it's probably like two hours and 45 two hours and 50 minutes there's 10 there's literally like a like a these are our heroes moments like during the credits that like it has like their signature which i was like why anyway and so speaking of credits can i can i ask a lot of people were talking about this as like the end of if not the mcu at least these characters. Do you buy that? Is this actually the end of anything? I think if if Infinity War, which is a god awful movie, this is a way better movie, a god awful movie. If Infinity War showed us anything, and if this showed us anything, the 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 superhero movie, at least in the form of the Marvel superhero movie, has become a comic book. Like it went from being like a blockbuster movie into literally being like a comic book. And so, if you've read any comic books, you've pro- you probably know that the, you can literally make up any damn way to bring back characters. Characters. And you know what is more motivational than anything? Money. And so I think I think superhero comic book uh, mumbo jumbo and money can bring back any of these superheroes. So let's not like let's calm our tears a little bit. Um, my the I have it's there's so many like different conflicting uh, well not really conflicting just different thoughts kind of all unable to coalesce into one singular thing um because on one side like i'll admit there's there's something like very base and primal and uh exciting about the last 20 minutes of this movie which is literally just every superhero in this universe all fighting um you know it literally is like the encapsulation of you having your action figures and like making getting people to fight and stuff like i think we talked a little bit about that uh with ready player one but where it's all these different characters but there's something much more you know, kind of gratifying, and when you have all these characters that at least kind of are are connected, and they're all kind of you know, it's it, there's there's something that that taps into that kind of childlike nostalgia when you're watching like Spider-Man and Captain America bounce off each other and fight and all of these different heroes. Tessa Thompson's there, and I'm in love, and uh, you got all this stuff going on like that. I think that there is like that level that's great. But then I, I just think it's such a disservice not to roll roll it back a little bit and really examine this like as a piece, as an icon in, in pop culture. Because like I mentioned at the, t- at the top of this, it's 12 years, 22 movies. And like Andrew, like you said, it, it, it's set up in this way that it almost feels like it is a te- like a season of television. Like you have to watch these episodes in order to kind of follow the plot and then the plot comes to a conclusion. And that was one of my issues with a lot of the um, 
post Avengers uh, Marvel movies, which were like they were they lacked any kind of narrative conclusion. It was more that they were in a in a buffering period before this movie came along. And this movie was supposed to be this like end all uh, conclusive, you know, high note. And I I really like this review that Andrew you passed along, uh, or not really a review, but this comment uh, uh, piece written by Matt Zoller Sites at RogerEbert.com about uh, Marvel movies and Game of Thrones and kind of the end of the end of cinema and the beginning or at least the the encapsulation of everything as as content rather than uh just this like kind of singular piece of art and the one thing that really struck me was he was talking about the like the narrative beats and the narrative conclusions of this movie as well as kind of game of thrones like it's it lacks anything that like has a basic story structure has any kind of moral or emo or uh you know emotional like resonance like it doesn't have that it, it it fits more of like this dopamine hit like rather than being something that is is like constructed into a narrative piece it's uh more of just a way to kind of hit that hit that refresh i think he used the example of like the dopamine that you have the rush that you have whenever you refresh your twitter or your instagram or your facebook and it like kind of works in that way um and i kind of felt that way while watching this not only not really watching the movie but also just kind of listening to the reactions to it and listening to people kind of describe how they were um like the enjoyment they got out of the movie and i want to preface that i don't I don't necessarily like am condemning you for that. Like I like if that's if if that's how you, if if you enjoyed those movies because it just tapped into something on that level that worked for you, that's fine. But I think we also need to question that just as 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 you know purveyors of pop culture that that's not necessarily like that that doesn't have the 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 like cultural nourishment <laughs> for lack of a better word than uh you know some of the other stuff that uh that is out there and i think that that's kind of something that's lost on it the last point i'll make very quickly before i'll be done talking is i think we also need to really uh examine the marvel cinematic universe or at least this first for lack of a better phrase season as less of a culmination of 12 years and 22 movies and more of a of a uh, culmination and analysis of the american zeitgeist for probably probably the last 20 years um i think that it's really tapping into a lot of these this kind of um american political paranoia uh that that really uh, encapsulated the the nation post 9-11 um i think that you know starting with avengers and really looking at at some of the the follow-ups whether it's winter soldier or age of ultron or spider-man homecoming um there's like these kind of interesting ruminations on the political zeitgeist of the united states uh post 9-11 and kind of what we value as the the leaders and the the superheroes um of that political sphere um and this you know it's 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 less of a like a of like a red versus blue type situation and more of like the different the the different intersecting and uh kind of combobulated lines that are all connecting um the different facets of industry and 
and you know in finance and uh, government it's just like I think it's I think it's something that needs to be studied and now that we've gotten past that I don't think we should just leave it as like this oh it's so cool that they were able to culminate all these movies into one you know this coalesced sequel or this coalesced finale I think we also need to look at it and, and challenge it as like this piece of pop culture um that's the I know you and I have had conversations Zach about the MCU having these allegorical elements of things that have happened since 9/11 you can kind of read you know the first Iron Man film as being about America like selling weapons to you know nefarious uh, organizations overseas and then the Avengers film as 9/11 and not let me just add to to Iron Man not only just like America like these kind of private industrial uh, these private in, you know industry CEOs, CEOs. of weapon yeah. like arms manufacturing companies yeah and then you have Avengers as 9/11 and then you have like for example Nathan wrote about Spider-Man Homecoming as being about like the the gig economy and stuff like that do you feel like Endgame slots into anything specific in terms of the American zeitgeist, it, it, it's too early to say. Like as as exhausting as this sounds, I would need to watch this and Infinity War again because Thanos as a villain is is interesting in how he slots into this because it. I don't know. I don't know like where he stands uh, in, in terms of like kind of where he would fit politically in terms of how we're looking at this. Um, I mean, he's a he's a figure that kind of comes to the conclusion that in order to build a better world, we need to wipe out like 50 percent of it. Um, and like it's it, we d- which it's crazy how much Thanos has become a meme in the same way that like Nazi Pepe's became a meme. But I don't think that the same people are using that for the same purposes, but it it feels like it's doing a similar thing it's this like like i said it's this very wonky political like like borderline political thing i i don't know i can't i can't really define it yet um like yeah like i said i i would have to watch these again and i don't want to right now so i'm tired (laughs) um but yeah it's 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 something that probably will i'll i'll think about uh, a lot later on i just can't it's so exhausting after that but uh it's in theaters um hope i didn't like offend if if, if you're mad that i spoiled stuff honestly just i don't really care but if i hope that you know the one thing is that there like i i there's no denying that like the that there is this degree of fandom but i think that we as as just as general viewers should be critical of our popular culture um and I think that that's uh, even if we were doing nothing but just sitting here dunking on it, like it can take it. It's the biggest movie in America. It will be the biggest movie in America for a long time. It like we can we can throw out potentially negative things. We're just kind of working through this thing. It's fine. And I definitely want to again encourage people to go read the Matt Sauer Sites piece about it. Uh, just Google like Matt Sauer Sites uh, in game Game of Thrones, and you'll probably find it. To clarify. He's not calling Endgame the end of cinema because it's, like, so bad it's going to ruin movies. He's talking about how, like, the cordoning off of what is a movie and what is a TV show is so blurry right now that we're probably we're probably at a point where we're never going to go back to being able to fully differentiate between the two. Which is something we talked about in a full episode with Twin Peaks last year, 
if people want to go back and listen to that. But I, I think we're we're starting to see see that happen on like a more blockbuster scale now. Yeah, I, I it's there's a <laughs> there's a difference between how like the Game of Thrones or Marvel people are planning out this uh, dissemination of movie and television compared to how David Lynch did it. You know. Yeah, and th- these are characters that people have grown so attached to in a way in the same way that you grow attached to tv show characters it's like they've been watching the show for what is 11 years um and and every episode has been like a a huge event and every episode has been like two plus hours long and you've been and like now it's the end of it and you're like maybe you're Maybe you're 16 and you've grown up watching these. Like I ha- I've had many male students share with me that they cried during Avengers Endgame many times, and like, good for you. Um, but it is it is really weird that that it it has such like a like a televisual fandom presence on the multiplex screen. I could I could go on for a lot longer, but we're you know, let's we'll move on to our second part. Um, we're gonna take a short break. Uh, we'll be back talking four little girls and Selma after this. Hey, Cinematariats! This is your co-host Lydia Creech with an important message during this break in the show. Cinematary would like you to know that we definitely want your money. We still want to bring you our pure, unadulterated opinions on the world of cinema, but now we're getting into the Patreon game, baby. We've brought on a lot of new voices to contribute to the site, and we want to honor our responsibility to compensate all these smart people for their hard work. To help us out, head over to patreon.com slash cinematary to sign up at the $5 a month level. In exchange, our patrons will get an exclusive bonus episode every month, weekly shout-outs on each episode of the show, and the ability to dictate a movie for us to cover eventually. If money's tight, we get it. There are still a few things you can do that we would greatly appreciate. First, leave us a five-star review on iTunes. That's free to help us reach more listeners. <laughs> Secondly, send us a tweet at Cinematary, or better yet, send an email to Zach at Cinematary.com. That's Zach, Z-A-C-H, to let us know your thoughts, and we will read them out and respond to them on future episodes. Finally, please share the show with friends and members of your family who you think would enjoy listening to and participating in our film discussions we put out every week. So, to recap review send us your thoughts through twitter and email share with your friends and family and sign up to be a patron we would truly appreciate it uh thanks for listening and now back to the show when the glory comes it will be ours it will be ours oh one day when the war is won we will be No man, no weapon. 
formed against, yes, glory is destined. Everyday women and men become legends. Sins that go against our skin become blessings. The movement is a rhythm to us. Freedom is like and we are back with part two of episode 245 of Cinematary. In this part, we will be continuing our Truth and Fiction in the South series with 2000 or 1997's Little Three Four Little Girls and 2014's Selma. Uh, Selma is directed by Ava DuVernay from a script by Paul Webb. The film stars David Oyelowo, Carmen Ajogo, uh, Tom Wilkinson, Oprah Winfrey, Tim Roth, Andre Holland, and Tessa Thompson. Although the Civil Rights Act of 1964 legally desegregated the South, discrimination was still rampant in certain areas, making it very difficult for blacks to register to vote. In 1965, an Alabama city became the battleground in the fight for suffrage. Despite violent opposition, Dr. Martin Luther King and his followers pressed forward on an epic march from Selma to Montgomery, and their efforts culminated in President Lyndon Johnson signing the Voting Rights Act of 1965. In 2009, Lee Daniels was reportedly in early talks to direct the film. In an interview in 2010, uh, Daniels said that financing was there for the Selma project, but he had to choose between the butler and Selma and chose the butler. Other directors included Michael Mann, with whom uh, Ava DuVernay worked as a publicist, Stephen Frears, Paul Haggis, and Spike Lee. In July 2013, it was said that DuVernay had signed on to direct the film and that she was revising the script with the original screenwriter, Paul Webb. DuVernay uh, estimated that she rewrote 90% of Webb's original script. Those revisions included rewriting King's speeches because in 2009, King's estate licensed them to DreamWorks and Warner Brothers for an untitled project to be produced by Steven Spielberg. Welcome back, Steve. Subsequent negotiations between those companies and Selma's producers did not lead to an agreement. DuVernay drafted alternate speeches that evoked the historic ones without violating the copyright. She recalled spending hours listening to King's words while hiking the canyons of Los Angeles. While she did not think she would, quote, get anywhere close to just the beauty and the, the, that nuance of his speech patterns, she did identify some of King's basic structure, such as a tendency to speak in triplets, saying one thing in three different ways. Selma was the first the, uh, theatrically released feature film in which uh, Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. was a main character. However, attempts at making a picture about the civil rights leader had been in the works for many years, including Selma and several unproduced films such as an unnamed Steven Spielberg biographical picture and Paul Greengrass's Memphis. The properties remained in limbo because King's offspring were conflicted about how to manage their father's estate. Although Martin Luther King Jr.'s speeches and life rights are owned by the estate, they were licensed to DreamWorks and Warner Brothers in 2009 for the Spielberg production, which at one point had Oliver Stone attached direct. The King heirs launched several copyright infringement lawsuits against news outlets and documentary filmmakers, including CBS Television, USA Today, the PBS series Eyes on the Prize, and actor political activist Harry Belafonte, and also filed suits against each other. King's family contracted with intellectual properties management to represent the rights to his speeches. Oyelowo joined when Lee Daniels was still attached to direct, and actors who had confer- were confirmed in 2010 but did not appear in the 2014 film production included Robert De Niro, Hugh Jackman, Cedric the Entertainer, Lenny Kravitz, and Liam Neeson. Joseph A. Califano Jr., the, uh, the chief of domestic affairs for President Lyndon B. Johnson, took issue with the film's portrayal of LBJ, claiming he was depicted as a figure who represented, quote, the obstacles blacks faced in getting civil rights laws passed. Three days later, DuVernay res- uh, responded via Twitter, uh, declaring Califano's comments to be offensive. She encouraged viewers to come to their own conclusions and, quote, interrogate history. The Washington Post said Selma carries viewers along 
along on a tide of breathtaking events so assuredly that they never drown in the details or the despair, but instead are left buoyed. Uh, the New York Times said, even if you think you know what's coming, Selma hums with suspense and surprise. Packed with incident and overflowing with fascinating characters, it is a triumph of efficient, empathetic, cinematic storytelling. Uh, Glenn Ford, editor of Black Agenda Report, criticized the film as a product of the, quote, conservative black political worldview of producer and star Oprah Winfrey, writing that it, quote, insults black SNCC civil rights heroes, but protects protects the white rich Connecticut uh, Kennedys, <laughs> but protects the white rich Kennedys. Um, oh, On that note, let's jump into Selma. Um, I, I guess let's let's first start on on you know looking at this as a portrayal of, of Martin Luther King Jr. Um, as I mentioned, there was a number of projects which can you just imagine the Steven Spielberg produced Oliver Stone product? Uh, but uh, it, you know, there's a lot of movies that um, seem like they want to make him. It seems like this was a uh, kind of a difficult uh, process in terms of. Uh, you know, getting all the rights, as I mentioned, DuVernay had to, you know, draft alternative speeches. I mean, what do you, what do you make of, of kind of the portrayal of Martin Luther King Jr. and, and does some of that, um, the changes that had to be made because of copyright laws uh, kind of infringe on your, your view of the movie? Well, I don't know about the infringing on copyright laws and, and changing speeches and stuff because um, I'm not as well-versed in like the deep cuts of MLK speeches, but um one one thing is that it's shocking and infuriating that it took such a long time for there to be an MLK biopic, like for this to be be a thing that happens in the 2010s as opposed to like the 80s at like the latest, right? Um, but I, I've this is my third time watching the film, and and I think I liked it um, even more this time than my previous two viewings. Uh, one thing that I've always kind of admired about it though is the treatment of MLK and and how it. Uh, does a lot of myth busting um, in combat with the the popular American narrative of who MLK is as this like completely peaceful guy who protested the right way, um, who like you know uh, would 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 disown Black Lives Matter today and stuff like that. Uh, I mean, this this is a movie that really focuses on the the angle of MLK as as a person who provoked violence. Um, and I think that it might actually be a more violent movie than Spike Lee's Malcolm X. Like, I think you might see more on-screen violence here. Um, and people die. You know, there, there are um, one uh, white activist and one black activist uh, both die uh, from being put in harm's way as part of MLK's protest. And the movie asks you to grapple with that. But the movie is also like wholly on his side of course and and not asking you to question him at all but but really asking you to reckon with like this this is a this is a person who you know this is what true like morality and conviction looks like and these are the things that you sometimes have to do in order to express that right um and another another thing that I, I came away from from this rewatch admiring about the movie is how how beautiful it looks. I'm, this is something that I, I hadn't really considered my last two viewings of it, but uh, everything just kind of gleams. These like smooth 
uh, beautiful surfaces, um, like the, the pipe organ behind him when he is, uh, when he's preaching or that, that prison cell that they're in that looks like a Vermeer painting or something like it, it, you get these like deep, like glowing ambers, um, throughout the, the, the film and the cinematography. And it really does feel like we are painting a portrait of like a holy man as we should be, but also not not whitewashing his image and making him like palatable for the the white moderates of today. Uh, I'd like to you know add to that point uh, shot by Bradford Young, who uh, people might know from like Arrival. Uh, he also has. Sh- Didn't he do Fruitvale Station? Am I wrong about that? Hold on, let me Google Bradford yeah. Young. Um, but Reed, what did you uh, what did you make of Selma? Had you seen it Pariah, prior to Pariah. this? Yeah, I I'd seen it once before back when it came out, um, and I I loved it then, and I think I was maybe a little cooler on it this time. But I think that's just like I I'm a very different uh, film viewer than I was in 2015 or whatever. But um, uh, first off, it's what introduced me to Bradford Young as a cinematographer who I've followed him closely since because I think it, it looks amazing, like you said. But I think where it excels most is as a just a portrait of uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, maybe there are missteps it has in the way it shows some of its plot, or like I might have more issues with some of the uh, uh, the way it portrays some of the violence, maybe, which I'm sure we might get into. But um, I think in terms of just showing him as a person and David Ayala's performance, I think it excels. I think that is by far its strength. I don't know, Zach. What did, what what's your take on it? I think I'm I'm more aligned with you. I was kind of co- cooler on it this this second time. This was the se- first time I had seen it since it came out, um, and I was pretty high on it when it came out. I, w- I was really impressed with it, and I still hold my uh, point that it is it's it's much richer and much deeper and much smarter than the average like biopic mm-hmm. um that you run into i think that it's 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 you know reckoning with a lot uh more challenging uh points than you know just the the run-of-the-mill biopic that's trying to win awards um and i think it's big one because of the performance by oyelowo but i think also uh ava duvernay does just a incredible job of of you know challenge of presenting the story but also kind of giving it a little bit of a challenge um the thing i was thinking about while watching it is um you know how this relates to the situation today um because you know just watching it that you you have um like andrew was describing that you do have this utmost respect for martin luther king in the way that he uh approaches kind of challenging this you know what the you know what's being put in front of him in in alabama and just as the just in terms of you know broader scale the u.s government and uh, you know, just thinking about it in terms of today, I think that it 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 doesn't necessarily like it. It almost had a little bit of that something we were talking about in the Harlan County episode, where it almost had a little bit of that uh, nostalgia lens, where it's like, yeah, that'd be really great if that uh, if we could just kind of instill that today. Um, but I I don't know. I don't think in in today's landscape it works like that. 
that. I think that um, we're much more we, we it, like somebody like a Malcolm X is much more palpable for uh, the current climate of political activism and uh and so like i think just from the inundation of, of the of the current events and in, in, in you know news constantly that um it's not it's it's incredibly nice to see this and in, in it's it's such a powerful story um but there is like this and I feel bad about saying it, saying it, but there's like this twinge of fairy tale element to it where, uh, you know, there's still, you know, at the end it's MLK is still, you know, coming out on top. Uh, and it's just something that you don't necessarily feel, um, in the current political state. I think that she does put, put some focus on, put quite a bit of focus on the opposition he faces. Um, not just, um, in face-to-face conversation with like Lyndon B. Johnson, but also in these documentary-esque little title cards that she puts over the film throughout, where you're seeing transcripts of the FBI's data collection on MLK. And this is something she goes into in her documentary, 13th, which I, I still think is fantastic. Um, that, that documentary talks a little bit about MLK being you know, one of the most wanted men in America by the American government and uh, uh, be, being a, a person who had the, the head of the FBI on his case. Um, so I don't know. Uh, and, and the conversations that he does have with, with Lyndon B. Johnson about uh, how he needs to, to wait or just, you know, uh, uh, be, be patient. Um, I, I think that to get into the, the topic of how this movie kind of taps into something culturally about the south i think that might be it the the idea that like the south's reaction to progress in america is to kind of pretend that it's not happening uh to just tell to tell people just to to calm down or to to not make such a big fuss about the injustices they're receiving i mean i know just from my limited experience trying to uh, advocate for the visibility of like LGBT students um, talking to like st- school administrations and stuff like get get a lot of pushback of like why do we need to make such a big deal about this let's just let's just give it a year and and see if if everybody calms down about it and I, I, I that just strikes me as a very quintessentially southern reaction to um, like we want to be polite we're also not going to be helpful <laughs> to anybody, uh, you know? Yeah, I think that's really true. And I, uh, I'm i thinking that specifically, like, the progress can come eventually is kind of a Southern ideal. But, like, it's almost, a, it's almost like everyone's okay with it being the generation after them or, like, two generations after them. But, like, they don't want to be a part of it, which is very much how Lyndon B. Johnson, like, puts it off. He's like, well, we really need to focus on this bill instead. We're going to focus on poverty and then we can worry about voting. Uh, yeah. And I, I think that's really interesting that, that, that you'd sing a lot out as a, like a Southern ideal, but I think you're, I think you're right as well. No, it, it's it, just the way that he handles it, it. It seems it does kind of have that. Yeah, no, we, we see that it's an issue. We'll, it's on the priority list. It's on the to-do list, but uh, we have some other some other points we're gonna hit on prior to that. Um, and I think that that's something uh, we talked a little bit about early on in this series of just kind of that 
that like you were describing the south rushing up against uh progressive ideals and and just in progression in general um and not necessarily outright you know i think there's a difference between the the lyndon b johnson uh kind of ideals and then the more caricatured uh angry yeah, white people tim, that you see in in like who's the, the politician that tim roth is playing george wallace george wallace yeah 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 or, or more i mean george wallace uh we'll talk we're gonna dig, dig, dig into him a little bit more with the next movie <laughs> yeah um but i think more uh just the the caricatured uh angry white racists that you see like around montgomery and in selma in this in this story i mean you just think of like the scene early on when it's the scene when they're roughing up oprah and like you have just the most like cookie cutter racist cop (laughs) you know racist sheriff um and it's it, it's interesting that you had kind of that it's uh it's pushing up the uh the, you know these two kind of ways of coming at the issue and I'm, i wonder if that's one of the reasons why people took offense to how it portrays lbj i mean what do you guys think i was just looking at letterboxd and saw some people mentioning that i don't remember this as part of the discourse at all when this movie came out what are what are people's issue with with the LB, yeah, lbj I depiction either. i think it's it's that like I like I mentioned in the uh, in the notes, it's it's like this idea that he was kind of standing in front of MLK and was, uh, you know, making it more difficult to pass these these issues, and that and a lot of people believe that uh, that's not that's not what was happening that this was kind of um them creating this strife between mlk and the president that that wasn't necessarily there uh i'm not really like a i don't i'm not no expert on u.s history by any means but uh i would i hesitate usually to believe that presidents in general in general are on the like very forefront of change and that's kind of how i feel like lbj is portrayed that he's He's not anti-changes, but he's definitely not going to be the one pushing for them, and he'll probably try to prevent massive changes happening while he's in office. And I, that seems accurate. And as as stated earlier, like his FBI is actively trying to sabotage <laughs> MLK. So like, I even even if they are being, even if Ava DuVernay is, um, I don't know, exaggerating. Uh, uh, Lyndon Johnson's opposition to MLK. I still think that we're we're still making like a narrative feature here, and he serves as a like a useful stand-in for the Americans' government, the American government's unwillingness to get on board. Right. To put it lightly, <laughs> um, and I I also think like to to. To be concerned about the depiction of the white president at the time in in a movie that is has at the forefront of its mind the like getting the depiction right of this historical figure that we have gotten wrong for so long. I just think it's very low on the list of priorities. Right. Um, <laughs> and, and to also kind of circle back to Southern culture, um, you know, be, being in the school system, I know that the thing that kids are taught about the civil rights movement and the thing that kids are taught about race in America kind of begins and ends with the I have a dream speech. And 
the way that Martin Luther King is presented is like very flat, very two dimensional, very whitewashed. And this, it, I think it is telling that this movie starts after he has already given the I have a dream speech and has already won or is winning the Nobel prize for the I have a dream speech. Right. Or, and, and all of his work kind of associated with it. So I think the primary, the primary like driving motivation here is like, let's tell the story about MLK that people are not telling. Let's tell the story of the South and the American government's opposition to MLK that we want to pretend never happened because we think that he was the, the good, the good activist. I, on on that note, I think this is, it's a perfect time to kind of tie in the uh, the documentary that we paired with this, Four Little Girls, which came out in '97. Uh, it's directed by Spike Lee, and this one, this documentary, it looks at the uh, the September 15, 1963 case where four African American girls, Addie Mae Collins, Carol Denise McNair, Cynthia Wesley, and Carol Rosamond Robertson, uh, were killed in the 16th Street Baptist. Baptist Church bombing in Birmingham, Alabama, which is a moment that happens very early on in in Selma that kind of connects these two. Um, Spike Lee uh, said he was first became interested in making the film about the Birmingham bombing as a student at NYU in 1983. After reading a New York Times Magazine article about the incident, he was moved to write to Chris McNair, the father of Denise, one of the victims, asking for permission to tell her story on film, uh, but McNair turned down the the filmmaker's offer. Uh, Lee he said in a 1997 interview quote i was entering my first semester at nyu so my skills as a filmmaker were non-existent and at the time uh, chris mcnair was still hesitant to talk about it i believe timing is everything so it took 10 years of chris thinking about this and 10 years of myself making movies for this to come together according to mcnair he changed his mind after supporting lee's film idea due to uh learning about the depth and precision of lee's research uh, he said it's very important that this be done accurately and correctly in all his research lee showed that he he was objective and seeking a broad section of opinion. I'm a stickler for the facts. Lee had first intended to create a dramatic reproduction of the in- incident, but decided that uh, that would not be the best approach. He shift- shifted to a documentary. Once he secured funding, Lee went to Birmingham with a small skeleton film crew, and he wanted to have the com- families as comfortable as possible. On the film, Variety set called it a compelling, straightforward account of a deeply sorrowful uh, and pivotal event in the civil rights movement. The New York Times called it a thoughtful, graceful, quietly devastating account. Roger Ebert said there is mostly sadness and regret at the surface in Four Little Girls, but there is anger in in the depths as there should be. So on that note, the the kind of connection, like I mentioned, you have this sequence that uh, is somewhat of the catalyst to uh, MLK coming to Selma and, and Montgomery and this part of Alabama and taking part in this march. Um, but I guess what did uh, this the documentary? You know, we Spike Lee uh, was mentioned as one of the people who would direct, uh, who, who was I guess courted to direct Selma. And it's interesting, and this is, you know, not a slight on Spike Lee at all, but he's a pretty, uh, he's a director that uh, you can kind of insert, can as a way of inserting himself into the into his narratives at points um whether you like that or not and it's interesting that you he does not really insert himself at all into this like as he, he's very uh he's very much letting the voices speak the voices in the in the historical footage speak for themselves and uh it's 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 pretty powerful um andrew what did, what did you make of the documentary 
Well, I actually would like to hear from Reed a little bit first, because I know that this is my first Spike Lee documentary. I've seen a lot of Spike Lee movies, but I've never seen a Spike Lee doc. And I know last year, Reed, you were really blown away by his movie When the Levees Broke. Um, And I'm wondering if you could maybe speak to speak a little bit about your 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 impression of Spike Lee as a documentarian. Yeah. So. I think what I most appreciate about the two documentaries I've seen from him uh, has to do with what you're talking about, Zach. He does tend in these movies to not insert himself. And I love his narrative movies. I love when he does insert himself into into the foreground. And I love when he makes his voice very known. It's not something we always see from directors. So I love that in his movies. But uh, when the levees broke, what's what's so fascinating about that documentary to me uh, specifically is just the breadth of what you're able to watch. It's, I believe, about four hours long. And you get to hit everything from the White House to Kanye to uh, actors and composers uh, Spike has worked with that were affected one way or another by the by Hurricane Katrina. And it, it is just fascinating how much he's able to uh, focus on in this documentary because of its length. And then I think here in Four Little Girls, he does something similar in a much shorter time frame. He allows their stories to actually be told. Like he allows people to speak and allows them to have more time with the camera than a lot of documentarians would. He allows them to actually tell a full story and he lingers and he does things like that that are more interesting to me than just, uh, spitting out information if that makes sense to y'all it uh it, yeah it, it has a feeling of like documenting oral history you know he is very rarely cutting away to archive footage he's mostly just letting people tell the story which is a very southern way of documenting history you know pa- passing it down just out loud to your family members or your neighbors or your your children but at the same time it's 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 still like deeply cinematic because to your point reed like he all like even though he just like kind of sits there and lets the people you know, lots of different members of the families talk. Um, he he also messes with just kind of the angle that the camera's taking in the in the in the lens. You know, he's he's zooming in and has these like extreme close ups almost. He like like the, he takes these different angles and like the way that yeah, he very very rarely can you see a person's whole face yeah, at, at a he, given time. He chooses the, these different ways to portray the people like in in the stuff that they're talking about um it's really interesting like that, that he he's able to he does have this kind of oral history tradition of of showing this of, and letting the narrative play out but he also is keeping it really cinematic and I, I think that that adds to it being so affecting i i think that to make a to make a comparison to the most recent spike lee movie i i would i was thinking about the the scene at the student union in black klansman where you have Kwame Ture giving this really impassioned speech, but then you also have all these um, reality, sort of reality-breaking cutaways to just like disembodied faces of of people in the audience. Their their faces kind of floating past and superimposing themselves on each other, and he's just really relishing, or or I don't relishing is not the right word, but but like honoring the beauty of these people 
and I think he's he's doing a similar thing here with with much more like gritty realism, but it's still the same basic ethos, I think. Yeah, and I think it has a little bit uh, potentially here, which I love that you drew that connection to Black Klansman, but it has a little bit to do with him experimenting with his form too, in terms of close-ups and zooming, because. Uh, I mean, I need to do more research, but I think these are his only two like made for TV ish. If we're talking four little girls and when the levees broke, they're his two like these were TV programs, basically. I think he also has a 30 for 30 documentary. Oh, okay. So. Also, uh, didn't he do one on Michael Jackson's bad that was for TV? Oh, okay. I haven't seen that. Yeah, I'm wrong about whether or not it was for TV, but he Sorry definitely did just, that. For just the dunking yeah. on you there. Shoot. <laughs> I, yeah, I've been roasted. False. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, I think like to an extent it is him experimenting with that TV and documentary form in tandem, if that makes sense. Yeah, bring it, bring in the cinematic form to the TV as to, you know, to follow up on our conversation from part one. <laughs> but the, but the, but I think that doesn't that play a little bit into uh, Andrew's comparison of seeing it as like an oral history tradition, you know, like kind because of, that was kind of the thing, especially early on about the TV that made such an impact with people was it was like this, you know, form of entertainment kind of invading your your home space, your personal space. And there's, you know, a little bit, you know, the, there's a little bit of that in this where it is this, you know, it's not incredibly, you know, it's, it's what, you know, a little over 30 years since it's happened. You have these direct family members who it's probably still... A really still alive uh, today. Yeah, yeah, still alive today. Who it's a really uh, you know probably difficult thing to to talk about. Oh be- God, yeah. Because the thing that really just sticks on you throughout this movie in the in the way that he frames the the story and the and pieces it together is just the fact that you know one day these girls were alive and they had like all of these all of this this life. In, ahead of them that, that they, they could kind of follow through with and then in one quick blast that like that was all taken away and the frozen in time element of it really is affecting in the documentary you feel it uh you know it's it, it just kind of has this palpable feeling to elaborate on your point about you know these people still very much being around and um this being a difficult subject for them to talk about uh reminded me of the scene that i, I honestly don't know about the ethics of spike leaving it in there but the scene where uh, there's this woman uh talking about her relationship to one of these girls i think she was maybe like a childhood friend of theirs or something and she just bursts out crying in the middle of her interview and and can't continue and she's like i'm sorry i didn't know i was going to do this and he just he lets it go for a little while before he cuts away um but i mean it was a powerful moment whether or not i mean how do you guys feel about him putting that in there or are there any like ethical lines that he steps on throughout this movie for me i think it uh, uh it's a really tricky question but i think to an extent, he's doing a really hard job of making a a tragedy that's become politicized. He's making it very, very personal by showing these people. So in my mind, if these people have agreed to share their story and they've agreed to do these interviews, then all he's doing is still transferring the how personal and how relevant and how like recent that tragedy is to these people like it's not a politicized tragedy for them it well it's a 
it's not politicized. It was political oh, to begin sure. with. Like this is a great yeah, okay, this is yeah. a great example of the personal is political, right? The bombing would not have happened if not for the racist political cause, and and now it becomes a personal story, which then becomes politicized yet again, and it's the snake eating its own tail. Um, I I liked the scenes of him kind of cutting back and forth between interviewing people who were affected in the moment and then the like white establishment authority figures who are kind of talking about the town in general as this archetypal, you know, uh, easygoing, peaceful Southern town, right? That, that recalls the way that, um, Macon is talked about in To Kill a Mockingbird. And one of the things that I think is really interesting about this as like a piece of Southern documentarianism, I don't know the right form of that word, is uh, like it is bumping up against, again, it's sort of like the, the popular conception of MLK versus the reality of MLK, the popular white conception of the South versus the reality of the South as like a, a place of a lot of bloodshed, right? Um, it also talks about how before any of this went down, um, Birmingham was established as a place of like labor exploitation and then union violence. So like it's a peaceful place to live if you are in power and if it's not you're either having violence uh, taken against you or you are having to take violence against somebody to live (laughs) with dignity right i think that we can kind of shift to talking a little bit about the one interview that garnered you know a decent amount of attention even though it's not a super long one is and it's that uh spike lee talks with uh george wallace who like we mentioned before is is portrayed by tim roth and selma but at this point it's, oh my god <laughs> <laughs> it's fucking hilarious man it's so it's hilarious I mean, it's probably also horrifying and frustrating, but it's also hilarious just, like, how bad this dude is at proving, at trying to prove he's not a racist on camera. Oh, my God. Sorry, I cut you off. You can keep going. No, you're no, you're fine. I mean, but the gist of the interview is him uh, trying to justify that a lot of his actions weren't driven by racism because it's impossible. Uh, hold on. Come over here. Come over. This is meet, 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 whatever his name is. You're my black friend. Come here. He's my best friend. I wouldn't go anywhere else without it. It just, it, like. Oh, that was terrible. <laughs> And the guy just looks at the camera with the with the most like hopeless look in his eye. Man, this guy does not know who George not is not know George Wallace. This personally. this like like the the uh, the the sickening feeling that I came at it was just like like I just saw like almost Kanye with the Make America Great Again hat and. It was just like this weird uh, collision yeah. of, of culture. Or the, or the Trump in the middle of his speech, like, there's my African-American out there in the crowd who I don't even have on stage with me. Yeah, <laughs> or just Ben Carson. Mm. <laughs> um, if, we're, if we're kind of getting close to wrapping up about Four Little Girls, I have one last thing to say about this movie and also just like Spike Lee's movies in general. Um 
one of the things that I have have really grown to love even more in the past year, especially after like really enjoying Black Klansman and then having to to wrestle my feelings about Black Klansman after the Boots Riley essay came out and then rewatching it is one of the, the things that you can kind of admire in all of Spike's movies is the the sense of presentness that they have. Like even if he's telling a story about the past it is always connecting to the present in ways that, you know, in some cases feel forced, but in a lot of cases just feel necessary or, or like self-evident. Like he doesn't have to force them because it is so clear that history is repeating itself right this very second. You know, there were many moments in Four Little Girls that, that I felt that way exactly. Like when they talk about the explosion as being like, a wake-up call for America and, like, how bad racial dynamics actually were made me think about Charlottesville and how we have been, you know, people have been trying to talk about the latent racism uh, in, like, American politics for for several years of the the present era, and it it took that, it took, like, actual Nazis marching for people to to scratch their head and think, like, oh, maybe this is a, a bad thing. And there's also, like, they talk about the church... Like the bombing of a church as being this this horrendous crime because it's a place of assumed safety, which has got me thinking about like Dylan Roof and the the mosque shootings and the Christchurch church shooting and uh, then there's also like all the the black church burnings in Louisiana that have been happening over the past couple of weeks, um, a lot of which were perpetrated by like a black metal douchebag, you know, which got me thinking about like fucking Lords of Chaos and all that shit again. So I don't know. This movie came out in the nineties. It's about this, the sixties, but it still, it feels like it's about 2018, 2019. Um, and I think that it's part, partly of like a, a symptom of, of Spike Lee as a guy who has a great finger on the pulse of like, American history, but also just goes to show the 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 like a lot of the basic wounds of America are we're not really doing anything to address. So what what could happen? But you know, us see these things happen again and again and again. Yeah, there was something um, going kind of back to Selma. It was there was almost a comic element to uh, the scene very late in the film when they're uh, showing the the police attacking uh the the protesters on the bridge the first time before the they have the successful attempt and uh it's just like this guy almost just oh oh my gosh racism is real you know like like there is this just almost comic element to it where uh it doesn't you know it doesn't feel like it's doing the images like justice it kind of goes it feels like it's all going back to that uh we know it's an issue but we'll get to it later uh you know lbj chat uh early in the film you know it's it it just kind of feels like uh it all kind of comes back to that's how the issue is addressed and i think that's something that that has been uh at the core of of kind of the a lot of the films that we've talked about in the series so i think that it's kind of a uh something that to kind of reckon with in the south yeah i wanted to ask y'all just real quick uh what do you know with about both these movies what do you make of the actual uh recreation at the beginning of selma of the bombing of the the church because i uh i 
this movie feels at times I, I prefer Selma when it feels like he's just trudging through like this bureaucratic process kind of thing. And then there's moments where it feels almost like Steven Spielberg did make it. And I don't know, this is, that's kind of how I felt during that segment, but I wanted to get y'all's feelings about it as well. I, I think that I'm more partial to the, the bridge violence scene than Zach is. Um, but I, the, the scene with the church bombing, I'm not quite sure what to do with, um, because it was the first moment where I noticed like how pristine and colorful the images were. Uh, and I noticed it specifically because I had just watched Four Little Girls a couple of days prior, uh, seeing like these kind of grungy, dilapidated buildings, and then watching Ava DuVernay's rendering of them as this, you know, this this beautiful, immaculate place um, that is so obviously artificial when you've seen the the actual location. Um, and so there's there's like the the reality breaking like nostalgia goggles that are on it but there's also the the question of like how do we depict this violence if we depict this violence and i i don't really know the answer to either one of those questions but i do just want to say that it is also something that that crossed my mind and i was wondering about i i I find the the bridge violence scene effective like when you're actually in it i i just more had issue with like the the uh, in movie reaction to it from from characters outside of oh. the uh, of the movie. Yeah, that that's probably that's yeah. fair. I think you could have cut that stuff out. Like, why don't you don't need the white priest like embracing yeah, like his that wife stuff. That's, as he's that's hearing this on the radio? Like, I roll my yeah. eyes <laughs> the actual bridge violence is 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 extremely effective and harrowing at times, and kind of has okay, this okay. like We're on the yeah, same this this kind of uh, uh, you know, it does capture this like warlike mist um, as you're trying to make sense of what's going on. No, that that seems incredibly effective when it's cutting away to yeah, the pastor hugging his wife, going, "Oh my gosh, racism is real." Uh, <laughs> I'm just like, please stop yeah. it. Uh, and so yeah, the 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 thing about the recreation of the bombing, the church bombing, is that um, it, uh, it. I think a little bit of it feels kind of like it was taken from like an Avengers movie, like in terms of the VFX use, like it's just like this, this sudden burst and you kind of see the fire push, you know, push the one girl away. And I don't know. There, there's just like kind of this Hollywood explosion quality to it that, uh, it's just not as affecting as seeing just kind of the, the charred remains of the church and like the the hole in the wall and the historical images that you see in in the documentary yeah i think that's pretty much where i land i don't mind the showing of it obviously it's it's very troubling to watch but like i like the maybe before and immediately after i don't love the slow motion personally i think that is a and i don't know i i just i had trouble with that choice personally well i believe that will wrap up this episode of cinematary you can find us on facebook at facebook.com slash cinematary at twitter at twitter at twitter handle at cinematary um at letterbox letterbox.com slash cinematary where we post all of the episodes that we talked about in this 
or talked about the movies that we talked about in this episode. Uh, and then, of course, our Patreons. Uh, if you would like to help support the show, uh, go to patreon.com slash cinematary. And a big thank you to our patrons, Cam, Chad Newsom, Christopher Metcalf, Maggie, Matthew Lingo, Ron Hayes, Tyler Chandler, and Whitney Rio Ross. We very much appreciate you supporting the show. Um, next week, we will be concluding our Truth and Fiction in the South series with... 2001's Remember the Titans and 2008's Breaking the Huddle um, so stick around if you have not listened to the episodes uh, for this series which I think has gone uh, very well and I've got a lot of uh, excellent feedback from people who have been listening to it that have liked it as well um, You know, please check out uh, all the episodes starting with the To Kill a Mockingbird episode up to this one here um, yeah if you have not checked the website out we have some great writing but we also are doing our young critics uh voting poll Uh, this episode releases on friday uh you have until sunday to select we have uh as of this moment when we are recording on thursday night we have 110 votes and climbing so uh our largest you know ballot submission year yet and it should be exciting yeah definitely uh but thank you for listening and we will see you next week